Well, hello everyone, and welcome to this month's issue of Critical Decisions in Emergency Medicine podcast. With you is Dania Koja. I'm an emergency physician who lives all over the world, but practices in Baltimore, Maryland. And I am Wendy Chang, emergency physician and neurointensivist in Baltimore, Maryland. And each month we discuss the Critical Decisions in Emergency Medicine publication, which is ASEP's official CME publication. I hope that by this point in time, you are familiar with Critical Decisions because it's a fantastic publication. In each issue, there are two lessons. Each lesson discusses things that are either bread and butter emergency medicine or things that are cutting edge. And the best part is that these lessons focus on the decisions that you need to make in the moment while you're caring for patients. It is focused and to the point. There are also a lot of other features like the critical procedure, critical image, critical EKG, and also, as our listeners know, my favorite, the LLSA review. So for our first lesson of the day, we have running dry pediatric hydration. Thank you to doctors Meredith Walton and Edward Walton for writing this. So we have another pediatric article, and this time about dehydration. I think it's definitely timely with the heat and trying to figure out how to manage it. It's definitely important. You probably remember when you from med school how there were these like tables and things about how to grade dehydration. So if it's less than 5% of body weight, it's mild, 5 to 10 is moderate, and more than 10% is severe of how much of their body weight they lost from dehydration. But the part that I could never figure out is that like one who knows the exact weight of their baby, you know, I mean, I don't know, do they weigh babies every day? I don't know, but it, it can be really tricky to figure this out. So there is actually a great table in the article that's a reminder of what are the symptoms that happen with mild, moderate, and severe so that you can figure it out without having to weigh babies. And the big take-home point from these tables is that increased respiratory rate is a sign of dehydration from the metabolic acidosis that happens without respiratory distress. So if you see a kiddo who's breathing a little fast, think of dehydration as well on your differential. And one thing that I've learned, and that's the one thing I always remember about peds, is that when you have a kid, count the respiratory rate yourself. No machines, no other people, nothing. Just sit there and count. The other thing that this reminds us of is that tachycardia is not really reliable for mild or moderate, but it definitely happens in severe. And of course, don't let the blood pressure fool you because kiddos can keep their blood pressure up until the last moment. All right. Counting the respiratory rate yourself. I like it. How about the adage of uh, sunken eyes and sunken font nails? Well, I don't even know what sunken eyes are. Okay. Like where Very do your things. eyes sink to? <laughs> I know, right? But they are not reliable signs. And interestingly enough, neither is your output. Hmm. So I don't have to weigh diapers either. Yes. Yes. That was another thing that people were like, well, what are... Are you weighing the diapers? I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. No. I don't even know where to find these weights. Just saying. So apparently, if you work in a PZD, you need to have your own calculator and you're walking around with a tiny little like weight scale, like the stuff that people use when they're dieting. So Right. Nice. Okay. Then capillary refills and skin turgor, did those work? So yes, but the issue is that they're apparently not done right often. So the article reminds us of how to do them the right way. For a cap refill to be done well, it has to be a warm room, which does not work in the winter, apparently, because I don't know about you, but our rooms are pretty cold. 
And then you apply the pressure to the sternum or the pad of the foot in infants or a finger held at heart level in older children. So dangly hand by the side of the bed, that does not count. And then release it immediately after the capillary bed blanches. A normal cap refill is less than two seconds. Now with skin turgor, it has to be a fold of the skin on the lateral abdomen at the level of the umbilicus, and then you pinch it and then you promptly release it. Now there's no real accepted standard for what's a normal skin turgor, but it's abnormal if it is longer than two seconds. It's also a great test of the kid's mental status. If they yell or pull away <laughs> or punch you, then they have mild dehydration. <laughs> or get tickled. Right. But that's okay. a great one, Wendy. That's a two-in-one. <laughs> what about lab work? Do I have to get blood work in these kids? So only if you suspect severe dehydration, if they're altered and they're not responding to your tickling, if you suspect electrolyte abnormality, or if they're less than six months old. And then of course, of course, we're talking about peds, right? I have to say this word, inborn error of metabolism. If you mm. suspect that or sepsis, then these are the kiddos that do need a lab to be done. You can check their electrolytes, you can check their kidney functions, you can check a whole bunch of things. But outside of that, the only thing you need to do is really just a finger stick to make sure they're not also hypoglycemic from whatever caused their dehydration to happen, usually gastro with kiddos. The other thing that people talk about is bicarb levels. And I don't know if that's how you practice. With the bicarb levels, some people talk about 17 and 15 and all that. And the article goes through the evidence for that. Now, if the bicarb level is above 17, then it's unlikely to be moderate to severe dehydration. It's good to exclude that, but it doesn't really prove much. Interestingly, in kiddos, B1 and creatinine are not sensitive or specific for dehydration. But if their B1 is more than 45, then I think it's pretty obvious that they're severely dry. Gotcha. What about their finger stick? What is the threshold that I have to give them IV dextrose? So with kiddos, apparently you can just let them be hypoglycemic in comparison to adults, <laughs> which I totally thought would be the opposite, but whatever. So the threshold would be 40 milligrams per deciliter. And if it's lower than 40, then that's when you treat them. And wow. then you need to give them 0.5 to 1 milligram per kilo. And then you probably remember all the stuff that if they're below a certain age, you have to give them 10%. And then after that, it's 25% dextrose. And then only when they're school age or older, then you can give them the 50 percent dextrose. And gotcha. still, some people believe that that's not what you should be doing for adults either, but that's not what we're talking about today. <laughs> All right. Then what about hypovolemic shock? How is this different in pediatric patients than adults? So as you said before, hypotension in kiddos is really late. And a reminder as well is that if you can't get IV access, because how can you even ever get IV access on little babies, especially when they're dry, IOs are an option. When you're resuscitating kiddos, the remember that your uh, resuscitation end goals include heart rate, mental status, cap refill, which we just learned how to do perfectly well, and making sure that they have a urine output of more than one ml per kilo per hour. Obviously, if we're talking about hypovolemic shock, please be monitoring their urine outputs. They're not really just peeping in a diaper. <laughs> gotcha. What type of IV fluids should we use in pediatrics? So it's just getting easier and easier. They're just like adults, normal saline or LR for boluses. 
And then it's 20 ml per kilo up to three times. And you give each 20 ml over an hour or even less if you want to. Now, if you've given them three boluses, so a total of 60 ml per kilo, then you really need to think that maybe what you're treating is not dehydration. There's something else that's going on. The big change from practice for some of us, if we've learned in those days, is that the maintenance fluid in kiddos is normal saline or LR plus dextrose 5%, which is different from prior recommendations. If you remember, Wendy, where they were like, well, no, you have to give them hypotonic solutions. And it was all these like very complex things where you're like, I don't know why are we not giving them all of the salts that they need, but hey, it's now easier. It's just normal saline or LR. And the calculation is the four to one. So four per kilo for the first 10 kilos, two per kilo for the second 10 kilos, and one per kilo for all of the kilos that they have after that. Okay. I like it. All right. How about oral hydration? I mean, there's the Pedialyte you can have and the PZD or maybe just some Gatorade. Well, the American Academy of Pediatrics actually recommends oral rehydration for mild to moderate dehydration. So not just the mild. And the authors cite that emergency physicians hesitate to do that and they just jump to IV really, really quickly. And the article has fantastic tables that talk about the compositions of different solutions. What are the exact goals for rehydration? Because for me, what the part that confuses me is when you're like, oh yeah, you need to get the kid to drink and they ask you how much and you're like, yeah, yeah, you need to get them to drink. Like, <laughs> I don't know their own body weight. I don't know. So apparently the really simple way to do this. And then again, the table really spells it out for you is that instead of it being 20 ml per kilo per hour, it's 10 because I mean, they're still orally rehydrating. So it's 10 ml per kilo per hour, calculate that for the kiddo, and then divide it to little alcots of five to 15 ml every five to 15 minutes. And the simple way I can remember that is that the smaller they are, the smaller the alcots that you're gonna use, and then start with 10 to 15 minutes. Once you know that they can tolerate it, you can make it every five minutes, and then advance is tolerated. Now, the tricky thing with things like Gatorade and all of that stuff is that it is high osmolarity uh, liquids or fluids. And what they're going to do is that if they have osmotic diarrhea, it's going to make their diarrhea worse, which is really not what you want to do. So sports Mm. drinks, sodas, juices are high osmolarity. You need to use reduced osmolarity solutions. What I personally do, and that's what I tell parents, and I know it's not perfect, but you know, not everybody has access to Pedialyte and things that are perfectly balanced, is that I tell them to cut it down in half so that they would end up with like diluted Gatorade, basically, and not end up with this high osmolarity liquid. Okay. I like that too. Now, what about if they're throwing up? I mean, you're trying your best to use oral rehydration, but the kid is just throwing up. Ondansetrone or Zofran is your friend. The dose in kiddos is 0.15 milligrams per kg with a max of four milligrams. Interestingly, the AAP doesn't really say much about that, but you know what? People do it and kids survive and it works really well. So what you could do is you could give them the uh, Adensitrone 15 to 30 minutes before you start oral rehydration therapy, try to get it to settle and then do that. You know, sort of like what you should be doing in your adults too. That's true. That's a whole other rant. (laughs) How do we dispo these kids? Did they have to tolerate PO and the ED? Well, yeah, that way you would know that they're not going to go home and puke everywhere. The things are that you have to have reliable parents. They need to be tolerating PO. 
you need to not be thinking of other causes like the sepsis and inborn errors of metabolism and all of these things. They're older than six months. And you had decided from all the stuff that you had done with all the pinching and the turgoring and the cap refilling and all of that, that it is not severe dehydration. If it's all of these things, then they can go home with a good education. And please, no brat diets. Okay, this bread and rice and apple and toast and all of that stuff, there is no evidence for it. Don't do it to your kids. It sounds miserable. And don't do it to your adults either. But that's, again, a whole other end. <laughs> There's a reason we feed adults pediatric diets in the, in the hospital <laughs> because nobody hey, wants to eat pediatric... diets. <laughs> exactly. Like I, I would take chicken nuggets any day over bread diets, yes. but that's just me. Agreed. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dania, for taking us through this article. I learned that, you know, instead of weighing kids to figure out how much weight they've lost through their dehydration sources, you should watch out for their vital signs, specifically tachypnea and tachycardia. The physical exam otherwise can be unreliable, but if you're checking cap refill and skin trigger correctly, that can be helpful. Labs are indicated if you're suspecting severe dehydration. So if you were to get a bicarb level that's greater than 17, then it's unlikely to be a severe dehydration case. If you're using IV fluids resuscitation, you can use up to 60 mLs per kilo using isotonic maintenance IV fluids. And then don't forget to always try oral rehydration therapy because it is really effective for mild and moderate cases. We want to divide it into little aliquots in, in advance, but don't use sports drinks since they are hypertonic, hyperosmolar, and that can make the diarrhea worse. Exactly. So hopefully now we're more comfortable with dehydrated babies and we're able to care for them and give them the appropriate amount of lollipops made of correct oral rehydration solution. That should have been the punchline all along, lollipops and popsicles. That's the best way to hydrate a dehydrated kid. <laughs> hey, that's the best way to rehydrate adults too. Again, just putting it out there. That's, that's how Disney makes all of its money. I mean, come on, let's be real. That is very true. Awesome. So for our critical procedure this month, it's actually on screening and brief intervention for substance abuse or SBIRT as we know it. And it's really interesting because as we all know, a third of ED visits are related to alcohol and drug abuse, and we really should screen everybody, even including kids down to as old as nine years old. There are a lot of tools mentioned in this article. All of them are certainly very helpful, but the key take-home points are that they can really reduce the risk of alcohol abuse by 10%. And the cost-benefit of using something like an ESPER in your ED is really comparable to screening protocols for diabetes and cancer. So it's a billable service. You should check it out. Well, thank you for going through that. It's definitely a reminder. We really have moved into realizing that the emergency department is a great place to intervene and offer assistance and counseling for patients with substance use disorders. And I'm glad to see that we are able to provide these services and still be able to be compensated for them so that we can continue providing these services for our patients. For a critical image, we have foreign body on ultrasound. This article is a great reminder that wooden foreign bodies are not seen on x-rays and you actually have better luck with ultrasound. These are some fantastic images, including not just the normal x-ray and not just the foreign body on ultrasound, but the foreign body itself. 
and it is an impressive one. So definitely check it out. For our critical cases in orthopedics and trauma this month, it is a case of an occult clavicle fracture. What makes it interesting is that it's a medial clavicle fracture. It's a great reminder that sometimes these can be missed on standard AP x-rays. So you may need to get special x-ray views, a CAT scan in some cases, or even in this case, again, an ultrasound. That can help you too, and less radiation. Definitely a great reminder. If you suspect it, don't be happy with just your regular negative AP x-ray. Our critical EKG this month is a fantastic reminder that ST depressions and anterior leads can be a posterior MI. So if you see those ST depressions, get those posterior leads. And now for our second lesson of the day, down the tube, post-intubation care of the critically ill. So thank you to Drs. Matthew Roginski, Christopher Hogan, and Michael Busher for this lesson. I personally think that they should change the title of this article to what are the things you should make sure you do before you start high-fiving everybody that the intubation went well? That's very true. I think there's been tons of research and articles about how we can do better in terms of post-intubation care in the ED. And so I think this article is great because it's going to take us through a little bit about how to choose your event settings, what to use in terms of analgesia and sedation, some things to consider in managing hemodynamic and metabolic complications, or even the cardiac arrest that can occur after intubation. And I like that. You are so like classy when you say it. And it's like, we can do better. It's not, we suck at what we're doing right now. <laughs> I like it. I really like it, Wendy. So how can we do better? Let's talk about vent settings. Well, Starting with the basics, regardless of which ventilator mode you choose to put your patient on, the basic concepts are we want to use lung protective ventilation, which is low tidal ventilation. Classically, we think about six to eight cc's per kilo of predicted body weight. This really reduces the risk of lung injury, even in patients without lung injury. Let's say if you're intubating them for neurological reasons, we still don't want to cause the patient to have lung injury. Also, we wanted to make sure the plateau pressures are less than 30 centimeters of water to reduce the risk of barotrauma. And then we also want to watch for dynamic hyperinflation, which is also known as auto-peep. You can do this by watching the ventilator flow waveform diagram. And there's an example of that in the article in figure two, where you can see that the lungs are not actually completely exhaling or deflating before the next ventilator breath or on the flow diagram, the flow doesn't return to zero. And then finally, we want to wean the oxygen that we're giving to the patient since it's also a therapy. Ideally, we want to wean that to less than 60% to reduce oxygen toxicity. Got it. Those are some great reminders of like vent setting 101. Are there any special considerations for different populations? Because what you said pretty much applies to everyone, right? Uh, yes, they do apply to everybody, but certainly uh, sometimes we do deal with special populations that can give us more trouble on the ventilator. And classically, we think about patients with obstructive lung disease. Since these patients already have trouble with exhalation, they certainly have higher risk of auto-peeping or dynamic hyperinflation. We want to avoid increasing the miniventilation on the ventilator to correct their hypercarbia, since that can cause the auto-peeping. And there's a great table in this article, too, that gives you a few tips. You want to start low and slow 
meaning a slow uh, ventilator rate with a low tidal volume. That way you have enough time for the patient to exhale. You're going to allow some permissive hypercarbia or respiratory acidosis, assuming you don't have any other process going on like the patient being pregnant, having a concomitant head injury, pulmonary hypertension, or maybe an overdose uh, with salicylates or sodium channel blockers. All right, those are great reminders of what are the things that we need to do in our special population and that hypercarbia is not always evil. We can let people be a little hypercarbic sometimes so that we don't ruin other things, which is, you know, their lungs. Yes, exactly. So how about analgesia and sedation? Do we just put everybody on propofol and neuromuscular drips and everybody can't move or do anything? That's it forever until they're off the bench, right? That, that sounds like a great idea to me. That, that is the goal sometimes, but less so. <laughs> yeah, Wendy's face was like, no, no, that is an awful idea. Don't do that. Well, mostly because a lot of our patients experience pain, maybe with the condition that led them to being intubated in the first place, or also just from these tubes and such. And pain, unfortunately, is the most common memory our patients have with their critical illness. So you want to start with analgesia. Then you add on some sedation, unless you're dealing with a process like ARDS or status epilepticus, or you need to paralyze them for other reasons, then you want to make sure you have heavy sedation on board, because certainly you don't want your patient to remember being paralyzed and not sedated. Generally, we want to avoid benzodiazepines, because studies show that these patients with use of benzos have longer ventilator days and ICU length of stay. So most commonly, we use things like fentanyl and propofol because they're short-acting and easy to titrate. Got it. Fix the pain first and then state. So how about the peri-intubation hypotension? Well, we've talked about uh, specific considerations about intubation in the past. Well, obviously, we want to be prepared. We might have to give them some volume resuscitation and sometimes also choose specific induction agents based on the patient's hemodynamics. But post-intubation hypotension, uh, you know, is something we talk about in emergency medicine a lot, too, because obviously they're associated with worse morbidity and mortality. Some risk factors you might consider are those who are older. If uh, you're using neuromuscular blockades, uh, patients with COPD or sepsis, extremes in body weight. And then interestingly, the article states that if you have a pre-intubation systolic blood pressure that's less than 140, you have a higher risk of post-intubation hypotension. That kind of makes sense. And then, of course, cardiac arrest is two times more common in emergent intubations than elective intubations. So that makes sense just because of the patient being sicker. And then also, in interestingly, even though we often might have, let's say, push-dose pressors or just vasopressors available for our very sick patients, just the use of vasopressors are associated with higher mortality, even when you're controlling for the patient's original illness. So really, you just want to try your best to optimize the patient before you intubate them. Got it. So what other complications? I mean, it's not like hypotension and cardiac arrest are not enough, um, but <laughs> what other complications should we keep in mind in the peri-intubation area? 
Right. So if you're dealing with patients with severe metabolic acidosis, their acidosis could get worse after you intubate them because, as we all know, these patients tend to do quite well compensating for their acidosis before they, you know, crump and need your help. And then don't forget about things like pneumothorax. Those, of course, can be iatrogenic or worsened simply by the fact that you put them on positive pressure ventilation. If you do have a patient who has a cardiac arrest in the post-intubation period, always remember and consider, could the ET2 be misplaced? Got it. So those are some really great reminders of what to do between the intubation and the high five. So we talked about doing the vent settings and making sure to stick to low tidal volumes and not get obsessive and worry about permissive hypercarbia, except in patients who are pregnant increase intracranial pressure, and salicylate or sodium channel blocker overdose and pulmonary hypertension. Those are the people where permissive hypercarbia is not okay. Everybody should get analgesia to make sure that they're pain-free or as close to pain-free as possible. And then after that, we can sedate them as needed. Uh, fentanyl and propofol are great, uh, not benzos because that increases vent time and delirium. The best thing to do for perintubation hypotension is to try our best to avoid it because if they become so hypotensive, one, they can arrest, or two, they may need vasopressors, and that incident on its own just makes them have worse outcomes. So we definitely, if we have the luxury of time, and it doesn't have to be a lot of time, we need to optimize their hemodynamics before we actually intubate them and get into that very tough situation. And then finally, if people arrest, right post-intubation, we need to ask ourselves, is the ET tube in place? Great. Thanks, Tanya. Well, thank you for going through the article with me, Wendy. And now to your favorite part. I didn't even start talking. What are you smiling about? No wonder you're super happy because it's one, the LSA review, but two, we're talking about acute spinal cord compression. So all of this neuro stuff for you. So go, go ahead <laughs> and talk all about it as you want. That's right. You guys should definitely check out this article because it's a great review of conditions that can commonly cause acute spinal cord compression, things like spinal traumas, tumors, epidural abscesses, and epidural hematomas. And there's several tables in the article that outlines the common clinical presentation, the treatments, and some pearls specific to each of these conditions. Generally, we want to suspect spinal cord compressions in patients who are presenting with back pain if they have let's say, a history of trauma, maybe a known history or increased risk of malignancy, if they have fever or other systemic symptoms that are in particularly associated with IV drug use or immunosuppression, or if they're on anticoagulation, the simply the re these risk factors for those conditions. We're generally obtaining CTs if we're worried about spinal trauma, but MRI with contrast is preferred for other causes of these emergent uh, causes of back pain. Oftentimes, with some of these disease processes, we're worried about multilevel involvement, and so you do want to image multiple spinal segments if you can. The cervical spine is the most commonly involved spinal cord levels in trauma, but the thoracic spine is the most commonly involved with neoplastic or infectious causes. Well, those are some fantastic reminders. Thank you for the LSA review article writers and for you, Wendy, to remind us of that. For some reason, it never occurs to me or I never like automatically think of the fact that it's the thoracic spine that's the culprit in neoplastic or infectious spinal cord compression. 
I don't know. In my head, it's always the lumbar spine and that is not true. So definitely image the whole spine if you're worried about something. Yes. So you know what, Wendy, we have managed to not say this word all day today. Yeah. But we will mention it once. Because our drug box this month is on convalescent plasma for COVID-19. And that is your number one. That's it. You're done. You're not allowed to say it again. (laughs) That's right. We've certainly talked about some other therapies in prior months, but this month, specific to convalescent plasma, it's certainly been in the news and the research is promising, but we still definitely need more data. And currently, patients can get treatment if they participate in clinical trials or if they could get expanded access because they have a serious or life-threatening infection but are unable to participate in clinical trials or a provider can request a single patient emergency investigational new drug application. That's a mouthful. (laughs) But essentially, you're applying to the FDA for exception to give a patient the convalescent plasma. There are actually details in the drug box specifically on how to request this with the FDA. So if you do need to for a patient, check that out. And finally, last but not least, our talks box this month is about tear gas exposure. Because what better time to discuss tear gas and um, use tear gas than during a pandemic of respiratory illness? Other than the fact that the word bad decisions is written all over the use of tear gas, (laughs) hopefully reviewing how to deal with it is going to help us mitigate this a little bit. So let me try to pronounce what is actually in tear gas. So it can have one of two components, either CS or CN. CS is chlorobenzyl. Lydin malo nitrile. Good job. The CN. Thank you. Um, and the CN is a chloroacetophenone, so that's easier. However, the one that's easier to pronounce, the CN, the chloroacetophenone, causes more skin irritation than the other long one. And that's the one that actually gets used more often. So, not good. The most important thing to remember is that you need to decon people who have tear gas exposures. They need to take everything off and irrigate their eyes for 10 to 15 minutes and rinse everything off because secondary exposure can actually occur from clothes. So they can be fine, touch their clothes that they haven't taken off, touch their eye, and then we start this whole problem again. Treatment is supportive. So if they need nabs, give them nabs, as long as they don't have COVID. You know, I just used mine, my one time for this whole thing. <laughs> and then there's, And there is something called... Diphotorine, which is a commercially available solution that can kind of sort of neutralize the effect of tear gas that's been used a lot in Europe. So I I didn't even try to Google or figure out why, but that is one thing that you can use if you have access to it. And finally, if you have a lot of skin irritation and skin lesions, they need to be treated as if it's a burn. Gotcha. And that is how you deal with tear gas exposure. Coming to a hospital near you, unfortunately. So on that note, thank you, Wendy, for taking the time to go through this issue with me. I hope that our listeners had as much fun listening to us as we've had recording this. And I hope that you found our podcast as well as the Critical Decisions publication always informative, often enlightening, and never boring. And please connect with us. We would love to hear from you. My Twitter handle is at Danya Koja. Mine is at EM underscore NCC. And until next month. Bye-bye.